Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter, the podcast that takes the important issues of our times and explores the ideas and intellectual trends that have helped shape where we are today. On June 20th, the Battle of Ideas charity hosts the Academy 2020, which this year is an online event via Zoom in the form of a series of talks and book discussions exploring the theme Psychology and Democracy. The event will offer the opportunity to examine contemporary events, for example discussions over the outlook and behaviour of the public in response to the coronavirus pandemic, or the discussion over crowds and riots that has accompanied the recent Black Lives Matter protests within a broader context. There will be particular emphasis on exploring why psychological categories have come to occupy such an important role in public life and why psychology has become popular as a way of understanding and explaining the outlook and actions of the public. The full programme of talks, speakers and details of how to register can be found at the boi.co.uk. Once there, head to the Page Academy online. One of the aims of the day will be to get to grips with the role that psychology and associated theories have played in various historical periods in shaping discussion of politics, democracy and questions related to freedom. An important text on the reading list is Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. In this podcast, we feature a short talk that reflects on how Huxley's renowned work encapsulated emerging ideas in the interwar period and proved prescient to future trends. The talk opened a discussion on Brave New World that was organised by the Living Freedom Book Club. The lecturer is Luke Gitos, a criminal lawyer, legal editor at the magazine Spiked, and author of the recent book Human Rights, Illusory Freedom. Aldous Huxley uh, was worried about love. In an essay written in 1943, which formed part of his collection, Do What You Will, he discussed what he saw to be a rebellion of uh, young people of the 20th century against the sexual morality of the Victorians. The issue he identified was that lots of young people seemed to be having sex, and they were having sex in a way which seemed completely unmoored. Huxley was not a prude, and in his later life, he expressed what was close to revulsion with the Victorian nuclear family. But he also expressed concern that something important could be lost with what he saw as an incoming sexual revolution. He wrote that a sordid and ignoble realism offers no resistance to the sexual impulse, which now spends itself purposelessly, without producing love or even in the long run amusement. If Huxley was sceptical of the nuclear family, he did not see much potential in unrelenting promiscuity either. Young people in the 1940s, he said, no longer quotes love with a capital L. Huxley's Brave New World, written 10 years before this essay, is one in which love and relationships have ceased to mean anything. In the words of the director of Hatcheries, everyone belongs to everyone else in the New World State. Huxley was a member of the Bloomsbury set, a group of writers who, in the words of Margaret Atwood's introduction, delighted in attacking anything Victorian. And what better inversion of the Victorian family could there be than a society in which no one belongs to anyone else? But this dismissal of the Victorian family is not just mocking. After all, it's hard to say that Huxley is painting a, a utopian vision of, of sexual relations in this book. The New Worlder's promiscuity hides the fact that sex has become merely a form of enjoyment, or perhaps more accurately, in the case of the New World, a way to stave off dissatisfaction. It's the temporary satiation of physical impulses. Even children have to engage in erotic play. Sex has been reduced to child's play. 
The language of the new world reflects this loss of meaning. Words which describe familial bonds like mother, father and birth are all remembered as expletives. When Bernard Marx sees a savage breastfeeding in the reservation, he is surprised by the intimacy of the relationship. And it's this intimacy which has been done away with in the new world in the name of regimented societal order. Promiscuity supports social order because it prevents desire. Relationships create risks to one's own emotional well-being. And what good is risking your emotional well-being when you have a well of physical contentment in the new world? Sex is not the only aspect of social life which has been rendered meaningless. When John the Savage returns to the new world, he brings with him his knowledge of Shakespeare. And he quotes Juliet's speech in which she implores her family not to force her into a marriage that she does not want, and that she would prefer to die and be buried alongside Tybalt rather than marry against her own will. And the strength of Juliet's feeling is completely uncomprehensible to the New Worlders, as is her sadness at death. When Linda, John's mother, is portrayed dying on a ward, drugged and oblivious, her carers question why John would feel any loss at all. The elderly in the New World, after all, are politely executed at 60 years of age, when they purportedly are exhausted of their social value. Both love and death both require us to make choices and to take risk with our emotions, and risks and choices are simply not acceptable in the new world state. I think this is often described as a prescient book, but I wanted to sort of identify an aspect of which I thought it was prescient in perhaps a different way than is often talked about. Huxley wrote Brave New World in 1933, and this is 33 years before the uh, German philosopher Hannah Arendt would attend the trial of Adolf Eichmann and describe the banality of his evil. Arendt's description of Eichmann is that his evil resides in his failure to think and his failure to make judgments. He is blindly deferential to the legal system and the order, the moral order that he finds himself in. And I think the banality of evil is the very foundation of life in the brave new world. Its citizens are unthinking and unfeeling. The only reason they are content with their lives is because they are unthinking. It is we as the reader who were forced to question why this sociopathically regimented eugenic society could ever be described as evil. After all, everyone is perfectly happy. Huxley is asking us, what is the problem here? And he poses the question through that one important addition to the new world state one which is absent from the Oceania of George Orwell's 1984 and the dystopias of H.G. Wells, who influenced um, Huxley's writing. And I think the magic ingredient in Huxley's dystopia is happiness. The characters of Huxley's book are happy. When Bernard Marx asks, don't you wish you were free? Lenina's response is, I don't know what you mean. I am free, free to have the most wonderful time. Lenina's understanding of freedom is a freedom from discontent. The happiness which is achieved in the new world is an unthinking bliss. The only character in the book who has chosen anything at all about their happiness is the controller, who blithely reveals in the concluding chapters of the book that he was offered the opportunity to travel to Iceland. Instead, he chose to stay and in his words, serve happiness, quotes, other people's, not my own. And I think that distinction between the kind of happiness offered by the new world state to other people is very different to the inner life that the controller is experiencing. And I think that distinction between our happiness as a society and our happiness as an individual is an important distinction that, that Huxley is attempting to identify.
Of course, Brave New World is influenced by Huxley's own interest with consumption. Huxley was interested in America. He spent time in California, hanging out with Charlie Chaplin. He, he was very interested in the world of advertising. And I think that's reflected in Brave New World's interest in the idea that consumption is the solution to an individual's ills. The dreamlike empty-headed happiness that the New World has experienced is suggested of Huxley's dismissal of mass psychology as one easily satiated by consumerism. This was, after all, the emerging age of the advertisement when mass psychology and commercial society were coming together for the first time. Mad Men, the television series, recently charted the emergence of this professional class of public manipulators, whose entire role was to align individual psychology with a product and sell the idea that consumption was happiness. If happiness is a protagonist in Brave New World, it is also the structure that means that meaning is absent from the characters' lives. It is precisely because these characters are happy that they have no hope of understanding Shakespeare. After all, they have no need for the psychological strife involved in understanding Othello or Hamlet. But of course, the cost of happiness is freedom. We are immediately introduced to the New World babies who are prepared for their preordained life through strict psychological conditioning. We know that they are barraged with repeated words and phrases throughout their sleep. But it's important to recognize that the condition of the New World does not end in the hatchery. The adults of the new world continue to condition one another through their own self-censorship and linguistic correction. Babies are no longer born because to be born suggests a degree of autonomy. The word parent has been eradicated because precisely because it suggests guidance and personal judgment over a child's future. The word mother, again an expletive, suggests an intimacy which has a resistance to the totalitarian impulse of the new world state. Huxley's New World State recognizes that people's inner life can be revolutionary and dangerous. To control language is to control the medium for thought and therefore of rebellion. Huxley's language policing New Worlders also remind us of an argument made by John Stuart Mill, that the most powerful form of censorship and societal control can often be found in the tyranny of custom. Huxley's New World State is powerful but the New World Order is very different to the all-seeing totalitarianism of Big Brother. Of course, there is enforcement in the ever-present threat of the exile to I Iceland, but it's the unthinking compliance of its citizens, their ongoing failure to think, which allows the New World to function. Arendt, again, writing in her book, The Human Condition, describes and captures what I think Huxley is presenting us with a early form of what she calls the intimate realm or the realm of radical subjectivity. She describes the very specific space in social life where we are free from outside pressure, free to think and experiment with our thoughts without the need to present them in any kind of public sphere. People are most vulnerable to domination when that inner life, that inability to think and judge for oneself about what makes one happy and what is right and wrong has been exhausted. What else captures or better captures the condition of the new worlders. John the Savage, in the course of his conversation with the controller in the, in the final chapters of the book, remarks that at Malpay, in the reservation, he had suffered because they had shut him out of communal activity. Now in London, he was suffering because he could never escape communal activities. He could never be quietly alone. The new worlders have lost all use for contemplation and with it, the inner life that John is able to express. 
I think Huxley's Brave New World is in part motivated by his impulse that the mass are a risk that ought to be controlled. But it's also a kind of an exploration of the kind of happiness that arises from a state of unthinking. It is a book about what happens when we cease to have any inner life to speak of, when the line between our radical subjectivity and our obligations to public life break down. In this sense, Huxley's observations are more prescient, perhaps even than his remarks about technology or reproduction. In the words of the controller, happiness is a hard master, particular other people's happiness, a much harder master if one isn't conditioned to accept it unquestioningly than truth. Perhaps humans are more truly happy with the truth and thinking for oneself than they are with yet another Soma holiday. You've been listening to the introductory talk on Aldous Huxley's Brave New World that was given by Luke Kittos at the Living Freedom Book Club in June 2020. Don't forget, if you would like to attend the Academy, that is our online event on June the 20th that features talks and book discussions organised around the theme Psychology and Democracy, then please do head to our website at theboi.co.uk and when you get there, go to the page Academy Online. There, you'll find details of the event, all of the speakers, and how to register. I look forward to seeing you there.